I grew up right down the road from here over in Highview. I'm Shane. I grew up right down the road behind AutoZone. He is a firefighter at Highview, and then that's where I met him at the firehouse when we were doing um, Crusade that year. Uh, we've been at OCC for two years now. That was about a year into when we were dating, and we had both kind of like fallen away from the churches we grew up with. Um, and once we started getting serious in our relationship, we kind of knew that we needed to get back into a church um, and really get a solid foundation. We kind of church jumped for a little bit, and then we ended up here, and we just fell in love with it from the first service we went to. I think we were like, all right, this is where we want to stay. We want to become members. We want to get involved. Mark was like, if you want to be a member, like we'd really like you to get baptized again. It's up to you. Just think about it. I prayed about it. And I just felt like my life was completely different now than it was. Then we started talking some more. And I was like, you know what? I think it'd be good for both of us to have like a reset. Like we're mm -hmm. starting over together. And it was a really powerful moment to have to be baptized together and for him to baptize me just to kind of lay that foundation of our faith before yeah. the wedding. Um, that was really nice to do. That's when we really tried to turn our lives around. After we got engaged and your shoulder got healed up, I got a full-time job. You had gotten promoted a couple times at work, and we had the money to buy a house. There was no point in spending money on two rents and we could spend the same amount on one mortgage. It was a no-brainer, so we just kind of did it for a financial reason, and we both knew that it wasn't right, you know, in the eyes of God, but we just kind of put our finances above that, which wasn't right, but that's what we did. The stronger my relationship with God got, the more uncomfortable it kind of felt to be living together. Like, um, you know, we had our college group over, and they came over to our house, and we lived together, and yeah. it's like, well, this is kind of awkward. We were kind of older in, like, a mentor situation yeah. more than a, like, interacting peer-to-peer, so it was like, this probably doesn't look too good to yeah. people that were pretty much mentoring. We approached Mark about doing our wedding here, and Mark told us that um, to do it, we'd have to live separately. Um, and I think when we heard that, we were both like, yeah, okay. Like, yeah, there wasn't it, a question. We knew we were in the wrong, so. And we'd been very blessed at that point. I mean, God gave us both very good jobs mm -hmm. and both successful in our careers, so it was like, I mean, it's the least we could do to repay what we've been given. Good to you know start our marriage out putting God first and doing that you know really going out of our way you know do something that wasn't convenient or comfortable but I think it made it more meaningful when we got to come back together and be in the same house again I think abstaining was nice before the wedding it was something we knew that wasn't right the Bible says deny ourselves and follow Christ and that be our first thing we did before we got married was really um, special I got to like reflect on myself a lot more and just kind of prepare myself spiritually to be married um, before we came together and started working on our relationship together. Because um, at the same time, we were doing our marriage counseling. So it was kind of nice to have that time apart to really focus on ourselves and get ourselves ready before we tried to focus on the two of us together. I think it was nice, too, because like we did live together for that little bit of period of time, kind of things that she didn't like about me. It was like it gave me time to prepare myself and be better for her when we did come back together. It can be difficult, like, making that decision to step away from each other once you're already there, but it humbles you, I guess you'd say. You expect all this, and then it's just, it's gone, and then you come back, and it just makes it that much better. We've been taking steps to stay on track. Just really trying to build our relationship and build our relationship with God, yeah. and 
um, getting more involved at the church. We've been getting close with our group of four other married couples that just got married. Um, and so that's been nice to build those friendships too. Well, church, I love a great turnaround story. Seeing a couple going one direction and they decide to reorient that direction to get aligned with God's path. Aren't you proud of Courtney and Shane? Man, the next chapter of their story is going to be so, so beautiful. And that's brave. That's a brave move for a young couple in our culture. Not only to do what they did, but then to share that story. I'm so proud of them. Hey, we're continuing in our series today called crazy love. And the topic that we're going to cover today, marriage and commitment, you know, some of the stuff associated with some of the things we're going to talk about today can sometimes bring up some shame or guilt or condemnation for people. So if you're newer to us, I just want to let you know, if you're not familiar with the way we operate around here, shame is not our thing. Like that's not why we're doing this. We're not doing this to embarrass anybody. We're not doing this for a holier-than-thou approach, but neither will we shy away from tough topics and tough biblical truth. In fact, we will go headlong into it even when it's uncomfortable for us to do so. And we choose instead, instead of going away from that, we want to offer you God's truth, but we try to do that gently and boldly to help us get aligned with God. Because we believe that what God wants for us is even better than what we would want for ourselves. But to discover what God would have for us and his better plan for us, we've got to dig into God's word. We've got to learn his truth. We've got to see what God would want for us, but also what God wants from us. And then we can do everything we can to line up our lives with that truth and then live accordingly because we believe it really is a better way. So as we look at marriage today, we want to see what God's word has to say. And a very succinct statement is made in Hebrews chapter 13 that gives us God's perspective on marriage. It says, marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, we'll dig into some of those things in a little bit, but we see that marriage should be honored, that that is God's perspective, that we would honor marriage. And who is it that should honor marriage? All. Church, say all. All right, do it again, all. All right, I think I even heard some of you online say it. And that word is all-inclusive. It means every one of us, all of us, you, 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 me, we should all honor marriage. But we know not everybody honors marriage. That's just not how it's viewed in our culture today. In fact, our culture has three very distinct and different approaches to marriage. We'll see that some people take a very casual approach to marriage because they have a casual approach to relationships. Others have a contractual approach And then some have a covenantal approach to marriage. And in the casual approach, marriage is just seen as not a big deal. It's just not a big thing. The sad reality is that while the first part of Courtney and Shane's story is really common in our world, the second part of their story, how they chose to get on God's path, well, that is not common enough. Many people take a casual approach to relationships. And then they end up with a casual approach to marriage. And that gives them a casual approach to all things associated with marriage. And that means a casual approach to all the things that married couples would do, including 
living together and all the things that go with living together and sexual activity together. Couples move in together to test things out. We're told you gotta try before you buy. Why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? All right, we have these statements out there. And what happens is, well, you start hanging out with somebody and then you decide you might spend the night there and so you bring over the toothbrush and eventually you bring over some clothes and then the next thing you know, you got your favorite coffee mug in the cabinet and you're moved in with each other. And that goes well for a while, but then, oh, something goes a little awry and you don't really like how things are going. So you take your stuff, you pack up your toothbrush, you pack up your clothes, you take your favorite coffee mug and you go do that again with somebody else. You go move in with some other guy, you go move in with some other guy and you repeat the process again and again and again. And this is what we see happening all the time in our culture. And you do that until eventually you find the person who it works with. And you might want to stick it out a little bit longer and you decide, yeah, maybe we'll give this marriage thing a shot and you get married and it's good for a while until it's not. Until you realize that she squeezes the toothpaste from the middle and she just won't stop doing that. Until you realize he sweats when he eats and it's weird, you know, and her feet morph into ice cubes as soon as she gets under the covers and he breathes too heavily at night, things that he can obviously control and this just upsets you and so you look for a way out and you take your way out. Why are we surprised that there's so many divorced people in our nation and our culture i mean so many people play house they pretend to be married and then they practice divorce oh i don't like the way things are going so i'm just going to pack up my toys and leave when we have a casual approach to relationships and a casual approach to marriage when marriage is only a piece of paper when sex is no big deal when i can just pack up my toys and leave why would we expect anything other than divorce Now, again, this is not to shame anyone. If you're in that situation, this is not to embarrass you. This is not to look down on you. In fact, we want to offer a better way forward for you. Research indicates, and when I say research, I don't mean that there are just a few Christian uh, research institutions that did this and it's really skewed stuff. I mean, this is like research from Yale and Harvard and Princeton. Articles run in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Post. And the overwhelming amount of evidence and research indicates that when couples live together before they get married, they have lower levels of marriage satisfaction, they have a lower level of joy in their marriage. And the more partners they've had prior to marriage, the lower the satisfaction becomes. These are secular researchers finding this. But they also find that couples who do not live together before marriage have higher levels of trust in their marriage. They have a higher level of mental peace. Those people have higher levels of sexual satisfaction in their marriage. And they even have increased financial stability. You know, God's word is proven true by our culture. It's a bit self-serving. It's a bit hedonistic to live into God's word because it really is the best thing for us. Pardon me. So, friend, I've got a challenge for you today. If you are one of those people who is playing house, if you're one of those people who is playing it fast and loose with your sexual activity, my challenge to you is to stop, to move out from the other person, to abstain from sex until you're married. And I know that goes against everything our culture says, but it really is what's best for you.
Now, church, I've got a challenge for you all as well. Because one of the things we hear most often as we are counseling young couples and encourage them to move apart from one another until they're married is we hear, well, rent is really expensive. Our finances just don't allow it. And nobody, you know, the, the marriage is already set. It's only a few months away. And nobody will rent for just a few months. So church, I'm going to encourage you. If you're one of those people who has been blessed with space in your home, you've got a basement that could double as a separate living quarters for somebody, you've got an apartment above the garage, you have a rental property, or you've been blessed with some finances and you would want to help a young couple. Let's not just coalesce to our culture and say, oh, it's no big deal. Let's not condescend to the individual, say you should change your way. Let's be the solution for them. Church, I'm gonna encourage you to text the word commit, C-O-M-M-I-T, to 502-289-1387. And when you do, you'll get a link that says, I need help, that's one of the boxes, or you can click the help, the button that says, I'm willing to help. And if you are living with somebody, but you're not yet married, and you want to align with God's path, but you're just not sure how to do that, what that looks like for you, we're here for you, not to judge you, we wanna help you. And church, if you're willing to be that help for somebody, let us know. You know, God's plan is not that we would just approach things casually. But nor is his plan that we would just approach things contractually. But that's exactly how a lot of people do it. They take a contractual approach to marriage. When my family and I first moved to Louisville a couple years ago, I signed a contract with the landlord. We rented a house, and <clears throat> we both knew that we were looking out for our own best interest. We were limiting our responsibility. And we were signing this deal knowing that we were looking out for our own best interest. And so the way the contract read, you know, there were certain things. If the dishwasher stopped working on its own, that was up to him. He had to come fix that. If my son and I were playing ball, we broke a window, that was on us. We had to have that fixed. If the basement were to leak and flood and ruin some of our stuff, that was on him. He had to insure a dry basement. If I didn't pay the rent, that was on me. And we no pay, no stay. If either one of us would break the contract, the other one was released from it and freed up. Now, Suddenly, that's the way a lot of people approach marriage. If you no longer do what I want, if you don't meet my needs, if you don't make me happy, I'm out. Now, this is not unique to our era. This is not unique to our day and age. This is not something new in America in the last several decades. This dates all the way back to Jesus' time and even before. In Matthew chapter 19, we read that some Pharisees, some religious leaders, came and tried to trap Jesus. You know you're never in a good spot when you're trying to trap Jesus. But they came, they tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any old reason? Now what they're doing is they're taking what Moses had written in Deuteronomy in the law, and they're saying, hey, he said there was a way out. You know, can, can we do this? You know, Can a guy divorce his wife for just any old reason? They were trying to trap Jesus and see what he might say. And Jesus gave a bold answer, and he took them all the way back to Genesis, to the very beginning, the text that we've been looking at the last few weeks in this series. Next verse. Jesus said, haven't you read the scriptures? That's a good question for us. Have we read the Bible? Jesus said, the scriptures record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his daddy and mommy, and he's joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. And since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. 
When the two become one, don't try to unone the oneness. Now notice God's logic here. Two have become one. If you are to separate, they become one flesh. If you are to separate them, you're tearing flesh from flesh. And you can't tear flesh from flesh without some trauma. When I was in college, at the end of every fall semester, my buddies and I would go camping. It's a fine time to camp in Illinois in December. There's usually snow on the ground. And, uh, but we were college students, and we were dumb. So we would go camping in December. And there was one year where my buddy Chad had joined us. And Chad, he's more of a city guy, and he's not much of a camping guy. And he didn't particularly love being out there in the cold. <clears throat> but he was excited to learn how to use the axe to chop some firewood for us. He never used the axe, so I was kind of supervising Chad, making sure he didn't hurt himself, making sure he didn't hurt me. There he is with the axe. But I was paying so much attention to him that I wasn't paying as much attention to myself, and I accidentally grabbed the teeth side of the bow saw we had been using to cut some of the firewood. And immediately I knew that I just made a really bad decision. I knew that I had cut my hand really bad, and instinctively I let out a loud yell. I put my hand in my pocket to grab a rag and stop the bleeding. Now, our other friends were standing at a distance, and they looked over. They saw Chad with an axe. They heard me yelling. There was blood all along the ground, and I was standing there like this with what looked like a missing hand. They thought Chad had chopped my hand off. Now, fortunately for me, it was not nearly as bad as what they had thought. But it was pretty bad. I tore my hand wide open. One of my buddies rushed me to the emergency room, ruined my camping trip that year. I ended up with several stitches. I was fortunate that I just missed everything important in the center of the hand. But they stitched me up, and they, I had torn flesh from flesh, and they had to reunite that flesh. It was a painful process. It took a while to heal. I still have the scar over two decades later. You don't tear flesh from flesh without some pain. And that's what Jesus was getting at there. Now the Pharisees, they were actually not surprised by his answer. They were anticipating his answer. And they said this. They said, well then why did Moses command, notice the word they used, why did Moses command in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. And Jesus responded. Moses permitted divorce only as a concession. Notice the different language. Why did Jesus command, you know, why did Moses command it? Moses told us to do this. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Moses didn't tell you to do that. Moses permitted divorce as a concession. And why? Because your hearts are hard. This was not what God had intended from the beginning. Jesus goes on and says, I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and he marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Now, this is a tough teaching, so hang with me on this. At Jesus' time, for us to understand what's going on in this passage, we need to understand what was going on at that time. There were two different rabbis teaching opposing views on divorce. One of them, the more conservative rabbi, was teaching that divorce should be avoided if at all possible. Divorce should be a last resort and only in certain circumstances. But the other rabbi who, if you go back and you read that rabbi's teachings on many things, you see that he was kind of the cool rabbi, maybe the, the hipster rabbi, who appeared to be more concerned about what people would say about him than about what they would think about God. And he said, no, no, no. A guy can divorce his wife for just any old reason. If she does anything displeasing to him, you know, that, that's, that's fair grounds for divorce. She burns the toast, boom, leave that girl behind. Oh, she raised her voice in the argument. Nope, get rid of that one. 
Oh, she lost her youthful figure? No, that's on her, displeasing. Go find somebody else. Now, here's what was happening with that. You had many Jewish men who knew that it was against God's law for them to commit adultery. But yet these guys weren't fully committed to their marriages. And so they have a wife, they've been with her for a while, but then they see some other pretty thing. Like, well, maybe life would be better with her, but I can't just go chase her because then I'm in sin because I commit adultery. And they're looking for the loophole. God, you give me some way out. Hey, Rabbi, what's the way out? How do I fix this? And this rabbi says, oh, you leave the other one behind, divorce her so you can go find the new one. I mean, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. He wanted divorce to not only be permissible, but easy for the man. For the man. He was providing justification for guys who wanted a way out without breaking God's law. Now, that's unfortunately how a lot of people approach marriage today. Ah, not happy anymore. I'm out. You, you aren't doing it for me. You don't make me happy. Now, that's not at all what Moses had in mind. Moses was not intending that divorce be an easy out for the man. No, Moses was conveying God's plan that divorce was actually to offer protection for the victim, not freedom for the guilty. In fact, when you read what else Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, there's a clear indication that even for the guy who would divorce his wife, he still had to provide for the woman. He still had to provide for her dignity, her protection. He still had to take care of her. This was protection This wasn't freedom for the other. And how do we know that that's what Moses was getting? How do we know that this was what Moses said? How do we know that this is what God intended? Because that's what Jesus said. And Moses' writings make it pretty clear. Divorce was a concession. It was not the plan. You know, church, sometimes it is accurate to say that divorce is permissible even Necessary For some people in some circumstances, divorce has become the best available option. But even then, even then we should agree that it's sad. Even when God would say that a divorce is permissible or needed, we would agree with God that we should grieve that situation, not celebrate it. Now, Tom does not permit us today to address every nuance of divorce that we would see in our culture. Tom does not permit us today to dig into every possible scripture on divorce but i do want to give us an overview of what the bible teaches especially from the teachings of jesus and paul in the new testament both of them equally inspired by the holy spirit now again this is not to sting anyone this is not to shame anyone this is not to embarrass anyone but i do want us to have a biblical framework for divorce and for starters divorce is never god's plan god's intention is that a man and woman who get married should stay that way for their lifetime. That's the picture we see. That's the desire that God has for married couples. But we do see some concessions being made to that. Divorce is permissible. It's allowable in certain circumstances. It's never the requirement, but it is allowable as a concession if one of the spouses has committed adultery. Now, What we see in Scripture is that divorce should not be the thing we turn to first and turn to quickly. In fact, Scripture would tell us to do everything we can to be at peace with everyone else. Well, if we're supposed to be at peace with everyone else, how much more so to be at peace with our significant other? 
And so first, we would pursue reconciliation. We would pursue counseling. We would pursue repentance. We would pursue forgiveness. We would pursue long-term trying to heal the brokenness in the marriage. The divorce would be a last effort after exhausting all other options. But we do see that it is permissible. We also see in Scripture that there is permissible divorce in cases of long-term abandonment or abuse. And I don't think we need to dig too deeply into that. I think we all have a, probably a pretty good understanding of what might constitute abandonment and abuse. In fact, Scripture kind of links those two things together. Now, what we see in Scripture is that in any circumstance where divorce was permissible for one for the victim, then it's also permissible for that victim to remarry. But that means that when divorce is not permissible for one, when you're not the victim, you're not to remarry. That is not permissible in God's sight. That's a tough truth in our culture. That's hard for a lot of people to hear. A lot of people don't like that teaching because it's uncomfortable. Because it strikes at the cord about, whoa, but what's in it for me? And that is exactly the opposite of what God's heart is in the whole process. You know, one of the things that I've seen, actually I've been blessed to be part of, is couples who have been divorced, and that part is not the beautiful thing, but then they've pursued God, they've surrendered to him, they've repented of their sin, and they realize we never should have gotten divorced in the first place, and they reconcile, asking forgiveness of the other, and then they begin tracking toward one another again. I have had the privilege in a handful of situations to officiate a remarriage ceremony for couples who have been separated. And it's a beautiful thing. You know, they would wish that the, that were never part of their story, but to come back together with the one they'd originally left, what a beautiful picture of reconciling. And that's what God would have. Now, if you have divorced and you've remarried somebody other than your original spouse, you've done that process in a way that went outside of God's plan, don't try to reverse the course. Scripture does not teach you you should leave your current spouse to go back to your former spouse to try and wrestle. It just, that just heaps sin upon sin at that point. The biblical picture is you acknowledge that what you have done in your past is sin. You don't dismiss it. You don't play around with it. You say that's sin. That was wrong. You reconcile. You repent. You ask forgiveness. And then you surrender your current relationship to God. You lay it at his feet. And you seek to bring glory to him by living according to his word in your current relationship. Now, friend, I know that some of you aren't there, but you would put a yet on the end of that statement. If you're in a place where you feel like your marriage is in a bad spot, or you're afraid it's heading in that direction, I want to, I want to encourage you to seek help. And, and seek help soon. Don't wait until you're living in separate rooms. Don't wait until the papers are on the table signed by one of you. Sooner is always better than later when you're seeking help. But regardless of where you are in that process, get help. If you're afraid that your marriage is in a tricky spot or it's just not as strong as you'd like it to be, I'm gonna invite you to text the word commit to 502-289-1387. When you get the link and it says, you know, uh, do you need help? Just let us know what help you need. And, and let me tell you, I, I've seen so many beautiful stories of couples that were teetering on the edge of collapse. They were on the brink of divorce. And really, they thought it was 
insurmountable. They, they weren't sure what they were going to do. They, they thought it was done and that the love had faded. And really all they needed was some outside perspective. They just needed to identify some hurdles and some obstacles in the way and have some resources given to them to help them get over that. And we have seen so many comeback stories from relationships that seemed broken and are now healthy and thriving and honoring God. And those couples are so satisfied, more than they ever knew was possible. So don't, don't write the end of your story too quickly there. Sometimes the solution is easier than you think. Sometimes you just need some outside perspective. Sometimes you just need some resources that you might not even have known were right there at your fingertips. Now, I can't guarantee that things will get better. I can promise you it probably won't get better real quickly. It might take some time. It might take some effort. But I can guarantee you it's always worth trying. And I can tell you that there are some things that you can do in your marriage today if you want to ensure healthiness, if you want to ensure a stronger commitment. There are three things that research finds that couples who do three things are in stronger, more satisfied, healthier, more committed marriages. The first one is pray together daily. Couples that pray together daily have a ridiculously strong marriage and a strong commitment to one another. Their level of satisfaction goes way up. Secondly, sit next to each other in church every week. Couples that pray together and go to church have satisfaction in their marriage. And thirdly, serve alongside one another regularly. Pray together daily, worship together weekly, serve together regularly. The couples that do that have a higher level of satisfaction in every category of their marriage. Read between the lines there. It's good for all areas of marriage. It's a bit self-seeking maybe it feels like in some ways to do those things. That's God's plan. That's how God designed it to be. And we'll talk about some of those things in a couple of weeks, about the goodness of some of that. Friend, God does not want you to have a casual approach to your marriage. God doesn't want you to have a contractual approach to your marriage because marriage is not a contract between two people. Marriage is a covenant between three. God, the wife, the husband. That's the way God intended it to be. Remember, marriage was God's design. It was his plan. He dreamed it up. It was his gift to us. God gave it to us as a good gift, as a beautiful gift, as a privilege for us. He could have had any number of ways of doing it. He gave us marriage. The beginning of it all in Genesis, it highlights the first marriage between Adam and Eve as they are beautifully given to one another as a gift to the other. And this oneness they experience, this beautiful picture, that was God's plan. That's God's design. That's his model for the rest of us to follow. Now, God's standard is that we would have a covenantal approach to marriage. We don't use the word covenant very often. Here's what covenant language looks like. Covenant says, I am fiercely committed to you. I have a deep love for you. I will pursue you. I will stay committed to you. Even when you might not reciprocate. I will look out for your best interest even when you might not be looking out for mine. That's covenant language. Covenant language says, you don't owe me anything. My happiness does not rest on your shoulders. But yet I will give you everything. It's so polar opposite of the casual, the contractual marriage. The covenant says, I will sacrifice for you. Even when you might not be most deserving. Now, why does God want us to take that approach in our marriages? Because that's exactly how God approaches us. You know, marriage is a really big deal to God. 
So church, it should be a big deal to us. And we see that it's a big deal to God because it's one of the metaphors God uses to picture the gospel in action, to picture his love for us. He gives us marriage as a display for his love. The kind of intimacy that we're, the kind, not the, the, the level of intimacy, not the type of intimacy in marriage is the kind, the level of intimacy we're supposed to have with God. He gives it to us as this beautiful picture. It says, our marriages should reflect the gospel. That even when things are a little wonky, even when things go a little bit awry, we should still be fiercely committed to the other. Not committed to the relationship, committed to the person. Listen, it's going to happen. Your spouse is going to annoy you at times. They are going to breathe loud. They're going to smir- Listen, young women, someday your husband will snore, Okay. Young husbands, someday your wife might snore. Don't ever let her know, all right? I'm just telling you, you want to have to be a healthy marriage? Don't ever bring it up. Her feet will get cold. They will squeeze the toothpaste wrong. They will load the dishwasher wrong. Hair will grow in weird places. Gas will come out at times you never... Things happen the longer you stay married. Let's be honest. We don't have to pretend it doesn't happen. There will be things that annoy you. You will not like the way the other person drives. What's funny and laughable and you kind of have these cute little arguments when you're young. Someday you're like, you are going to kill us both. I think we're going to die together. I never thought that would happen. I thought I'd outlive you. But now that I'm riding with you, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen on the trip. Right? It's going to happen. You're going to... Listen, here's a little side advice. We've got a couple of friends of ours. They've been married for decades, decades. This is an older couple. He was a rally racer in the mountains when he was younger. That means he drove a race car through the mountains on normal roads, all right? A dude was like crazy driver. He has never really stopped driving that way. He's in his 70s. He still drives like he's racing cars, and he knows what his cars can do. His wife is one of the most cautious conscientious conscientious drivers you'll ever meet in your life so he doesn't like when she drives because she doesn't he's like she ain't even driving like we're like miss daisy in it through town like it's not right she says i said how do you guys deal with this she says oh i read i just get a book no matter where we're going backing out of the driveway i'm already reading she just puts her head down she reads and they have a great marriage like you're gonna do things that annoy each other so just learn to be committed to the other and realize those aren't the biggest problems in the world friend listen if you've done things outside of god's plan if you're playing house if you're just playing around if you're looking for a way out i'm going to encourage you to admit that that is sin don't pretend it's not call your sin sin and deal with it don't pretend that god's okay with it Don't pretend that God approves of it. Don't pretend that it's not a big deal so that you can soothe your soul. Acknowledge that your sin is a big deal. Accept that it's wrong. And then admit that God's grace is even bigger. You surrender that sin at the foot of the cross. You surrender your relationship at the foot of the cross. You surrender yourself at the foot of the cross. And you choose to follow Jesus, not only as Savior, but you also make him the leader in your life. And that includes the Lord of your relationship. And when you do that, you allow him to heal. Because once that happens, once you do that, then you can walk forward in the freedom and the forgiveness he offers. And once you've done that, don't let anyone convince you that you got to wear the scarlet letter. Don't let anyone convince you that your relationship sins are a permanent stain on your identity. Even if you gave up and got out of a marriage before Jesus would have wanted you to. That doesn't mean your faith is not genuine. Even if 
You've made some poor relationship decisions. You've played around and you've been with more people than you should have. That doesn't mean that you can't have a strong relationship with God. It doesn't mean you have to carry the burden of shame. Even if you caused a divorce. Listen, the the truth of scripture is as true for you as it is for anyone. 1 John 1 tells us, If we claim that we don't have sin, we're only fooling ourselves, we're living a lie. So don't do that. Don't pretend that it's not sin. Call it what it is. But when you do, here's the beautiful thing. When we confess our sins to God, then he's faithful, he's just, and he'll forgive our sins and he'll cleanse us from them. Don't pretend it's not sin. Own that it is. But once you do that, know that God has forgiven it. And there is no footnote on this. There's no asterisk behind this that says, oh, your sins are forgiven once you give it to God. Unless you're divorced. Then you're shamed for eternity. Unless you were cohabitating and living together before marriage. Then, oh, Unless you were promiscuous and you were... There's no footnote on God's word. If you confess your sin, you give it to him. He is just and faithful to forgive you and cleanse you. But you gotta repent of it. Now listen, this is not just for relationships. This goes for all things. No matter what your sin is, you give it to God and you give yourself to God. He'll forgive you, he'll cleanse you and then you walk forward in the freedom. You know, some of the stuff we've been looking at today is hard truth. But the beautiful thing is the same Jesus who laid down tough truth for us is the same Jesus who laid down his life for us and he did it so that we could be in right relationship with him and with the Father. He did it for every one of us. Romans tells us that everyone, church say everyone, Oh, I'll say it better than that. Everyone. Everyone, that's right. That means you and you and him and her and me and my wife and my kids and you online. Yep, you online, I know. I see it. We all have sinned, every single one of us, and we have fallen short of God's glorious standard that he has set for us. We've missed his standard, but, and here's the beautiful thing, but God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. That word righteousness that we use in church sometimes, that's what it means, to be made right with God. And so, he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. That's why we weirdly celebrate the cross. I say weirdly because it's a picture of death, but for us, it's a picture of life. Friend, if you have not surrendered to that in your relationship or in any area of your life, I wanna encourage you to do so. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. The story of the Bible is a God who is fiercely committed to us who chases after us, who pursues us, even as we chase after lesser things. Satan just wants to drive a wedge between our, the relationship we have with God. He wants to drive a wedge between the relationship you have with your spouse. And when it comes to our relationship with God, sin is your mistress. And when it comes to your spouse, there's probably some level of a mistress there as well. Surrender those idols, surrender those competing things. Put him at the foot of the cross. You know, friend, it's not that we aren't committed people. It's just that we are people who are so often committed to the wrong things. So often we're more committed to our happiness. We're more committed to our comfort. We're more committed to our finances, to our convenience, to the things we want. And the absurdity is when we chase after all those things, we chase after things we think are going to make us happy. They don't. For a moment but they end up destroying us. Listen, I'm a guy with an insatiable sweet tooth. God's word tells me to 
put away my gluttony and be self-controlled. And the world's like, no, indulge. I love chocolate cake. Man, I could eat an entire chocolate cake. It'd be good for a moment, but then you get a bellyache. And then you just add that up to like diabetes and being overweight and all the health issues that come from it. Listen, what you think is going to please you is going to destroy you. God's word is not to restrict you, it's to free you. It's not because God doesn't care, it's because he does. That gives us his word, he gives us these boundaries. Because he's fiercely committed to us, because he's got a crazy level of love for us. And a crazy kind of commitment to us. And so we would be wise to pursue holiness more than happiness. Friend, because of God's crazy, radical love and commitment to us, we'd just be crazy if we don't love him back in return. We'd be crazy not to line up our lives with his plan. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who's fiercely committed to us. The picture we see throughout scripture, the picture we see throughout our lives is that we chase after so many lesser things, that we have cheated on a very jealous mate. And yet you come for us to rescue us, to draw us back to yourself, to heal the relationship. God, you'd go as far as a cross to demonstrate your commitment to us. May we celebrate that. May we lean into that. God, if there are any here in this room today or online who don't know you, who've never received your love in their lives, who've never received the forgiveness, God, I pray that today would be the day that they would turn to you, calling their sin, sin, and turning away from that and turning toward you, putting their life in your hands. No, that's the best place for their life to be. And God, I pray for every marriage represented in this room and online right now. That every husband would be fiercely committed to his wife and every wife fiercely committed to her husband. And for any that are in a tough spot, God, would you bring healing? Would you bring somebody alongside them? Would you give them the courage to reach out for help before it's too late? God, would you restore to them the joy of their marriage, the joy of their wedding day, and then just amplify it more? God, would you protect them from what the world and the our own sin and what Satan wants to do to wreck that marriage. God, would you restore the marriages? Would you restore our hope? Would you restore trust? Would you restore what's broken? God, would you heal us? Would you heal our marriages? We give them to you. We surrender them, God. And God, may we see your glory through it all. Oh, Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Amen.